welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, adventurers, welcome to episode 111 or 111 for you laymen of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Explorer Josh. Now, wait, and this is just Patrick. You're stealing my thunder. That's my thing, Josh. I'm a thunder stealer. That's what I do. I explore things and I thunder steal. Well, Thunderstealer, I'm really glad that you're with us today. Uh, when I say us, I mean just me because, uh, well, it's been a busy week for King Scott and I was like, uh-oh, how are we going to are we gonna get an episode together? And Adventures with Josh today, we've got a big old episode. We've got a few recent plays to go over. We're going to be reviewing humanity, looking back on God tier, and we've got a discussion topic at the end. You ready to go, Josh? Let's go. Josh hasn't been on the show for a long time. How have you been? I've been doing pretty good. How I imagine that scenario went is you probably asked Ryan and then asked Will. Yes. And then uh-huh. asked Andrew. And then you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I guess I'll ask Josh. So <laughs> this is this is this how it went. But I'm doing pretty well actually. I uh been very busy with work, got you know, my editing my own podcast, doing my day job, getting stuff at my local game store gun, designing games, all that wonderful stuff. But yeah, no, it's been a trip. How about you? How are you during this spooky season? Oh, no complaints. My daughter's the Pink Panther. So, you know, all, all kinds of fun stuff going on around here. I'm trying not to eat too much of the Halloween candy. got to got to watch the midsection. I'm thinking maybe by the time Pax rolls around, I can drop, uh, drop a few pounds. It'd be nice. Just by walking around all, all over Philadelphia. Remind listeners, Tabletop Submarine, your podcast. So you actually do your own podcast. Uh, I don't want to say on the side. This has kind of become the on the side thing. Tabletop Submarine is sort of the flagship for you and Andrew. Give listeners a reminder, Tabletop Submarine, what's it all about? Yeah, so it's a narrative – it's a storytelling podcast. Basically, we take guests who are involved in the hobby in some way. We bring them on. We talk about games for it, but they really share their most memorable board game experience. Mm-hmm. And we listen to them. We talk about why that experience is so memorable, and we welcome them out. There's a chance for them to plug whatever they want to plug, but it's really about – it's me and Andrew's way of spreading the joy of gaming through stories. And that's why we – I mean that's why we play games is to get the stories out of it, whether it's the story of me thinking strategically and having a great win or just having a great laugh together with friends or having a terrible experience like some guests have shared playing game. It's just the most memorable. So it's been going good. We've been having lots of great guests. I mean, little teaser. We, we had just we just had Alan R. Moon on the podcast. Yeah, I is, saw. That was crazy. In the past month or so, we've had Joe Wiggins come on, talk about all play stuff, which we'll get to a little bit later in the banter. And we've also had just a bunch of designers wanting, wanting to come on and share their stories. So it's, it's been really good. Andrew is excellent at what's it called? Networking. He has time to do that. So that, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. So I still love doing my level up stuff. I, I've been doing very busy with Tabletop Submarine. I'll tell you what, next time you want me to uh, to take the dive and get on the sub with you, all hands on deck and other puns, uh, I'd be glad to come back on the show with you. It's It's been a while. It has been a very long. I mean, you guys were one, you were one of, you were only a second episode, Patrick. Yeah, it was so, really early. It was sort yeah. of the, uh, the help you get, get on your feet. And I mean, you guys are sort of your own thing now. We are our own thing, you know, not not as big as you guys, but we'll get there one day. We'll have our big wet pants one day. One day. Well, you know what? It, it's a very, it's two very different shows. Scott and I just, we banter and BS and we, we talk some games and <laughs> we hope that people listen. You guys actually have some direction, what with, uh, the, you know, the stories, the theme and, and the guests you have on. And it, it's a wide variety. So keep it up. Um, I do look forward to every episode. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. But enough about me. How about you? Well, I got in a Kickstarter. I got in a Kickstarter. It's always one of the like, most exciting things to come home from work. And there's that box either on the sofa or sitting out on the on the porch. And dude, it's uh, it's Lunar Rush. We mm. initially we had Skippy Brown on back in episode. Get this, sixty six. And I was doing the math. I was like, wow, oh, that's like almost half half of our show ago but got <laughs> lunar rush in i'm telling you what the gold modules have hollow foil treatment the resources look great the inset player boards are fantastic dead alive did a great job with this adventures get on back to episode 66 and hear all about lunar rush highly recommend it so glad to have it now it's funny like we always want to play the next new thing because, well, we got to get an 8-bit breakdown. We have to have something on the show. This just came in and I was like, well, we've already talked about it. We've already done the breakdown. Don't care. I'm playing it again anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see this alternate art we got going on for Wingspan? Jamie released like 255 cards. It's a pack you can buy. It's 25 bucks and it's cards that already exist. There's nothing new in it except for the art on the birds. Did you see these things? I did. Some of them are absolutely fantastic, and some mm-hmm. of them are, are are pieces of art. Some of them are pieces of art. <laughs> we'll say stylized. I kind of like the variation. Yeah, I do too, but I mean, I'm just a big fan of Wingspan's original artwork, and sure, some sure. of them are such a far departure from that. Like, I, I'm not as obsessed with Wingspan as some people. Like, I have one expansion for it that I got on a, like a deal. But I do like the base game. It's a fun time. But, you know, for this, I'm not sure I'd want to – I want to replace some some of these cards with the cards in the game. No, not because they're bad. Some of them are bad in my opinion per se. But just because it kind of – I think it would take away from the experience. It's too much a departure left for me. Okay. I know that's fair. And you know what? Those cards would definitely stick out when you draw one compared to all the, the we'll say, standardized or like you look at any one of the birds that uh, – it's all Beth Sabell's uh, artwork. You look at any one of those birds and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, this was all done by the same artist. And then suddenly you get one like that one. It's like black and white ink. I love that. But it's going to stand out. You're going to know it when you draw it like, whoa, this one's different. Yeah, and, that, and that's going to be really nice for some people, I think, who are wingspan fanatics. But that's who this is for. It's for wingspan fanatics, not for mm-hmm. laymen like me who just like wingspan. What's this you got about all play? Uh, all play medallion reward or something? Now, I love me some all play. Uh, t- they started – all play started on tables. They used to be boardgametables.com and they started making games and their games were catching on and they were really good. And you'd tell somebody, oh, yeah, no, I got this QE game. It's it's by Board Game Tables. And they'd be like, wait, 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 Board Game Tables? No, who's the publisher? Who makes this board game? Yeah, it's Board Game Tables. Well, they did a little bit of rebranding. Now they're all play and you got them in the news. The band, yeah. whatever we call this. Yeah, so like I said, I talked with Joe recently. He was on the not the tabletop submarine show. We have a a side show called the Periscope, which is we ask questions about crowdfunding projects for board games and mm-hmm. kind of try to ask questions from a backer perspective with the person who'd be running it or involved with it in some way. Sure. And Joe brought up that for this most recent Kickstarter, which is Through the Desert, Switchbacks, and Message from the Stars, that if you back the all in, you're going to receive an all play medallion. And what this does is that it guarantees you and promises a special something that all play is going to announce in the future with it. It's like this little wooden medallion. And if you have it and you back this project all in, you'll receive it and you can use it to redeem this prize. But they're keeping it a secret. And I put this in the news because I don't remember the last time I saw a Kickstarter do this beyond Brandon Sanderson's you know, mega book project where he's like, I'm just writing some books. Trust me. And this is this is all play doing something very similar, saying, "Hey, 
we're a great company because I do believe they are a great company. You can trust oh, yeah. us. Here's something to reward that trust that we'll announce in the future. But I mean, how do you feel about like rewards and things like this? Mm, you know what? With the randomness of it, like I, I feel like I feel like you're backing the Kickstarter because you want the games. Make no mistake. Like without the games, they couldn't make a Kickstarter and just be like, "You're getting a token for a random thing," because it would probably be like too adjacent to gambling. Like, well, yeah. you can't do that. But if you're back in the games, and this is just a little throw-in, by the way, there's going to be a little, like, a little, a uh, little something special, a little, a little deal sweetener. You don't know what it is. They might not even know what it is yet, or they might still be working out the kinks and figuring out what it's going to be. That's why they're not in. I, I, I just don't know. But you never know with all play. I mean, these guys. They did a contest last year about a board game room makeover. Did, did you talk? Did Joe mention this at all? He did mention it a little bit. Yes, I, I knew about this beforehand. But they're expanding into they're becoming like a whole multimedia. Multimedia is not the word, but they're coming. They're branching out a lot more than just making board games. Yeah, yeah well, for what started off as a table company, and you know, now they're doing the board games. They got this Kickstarter coming up. I bring up this board game room makeover because that token. You know, that could mean like, oh, we're going to give you uh, every one of our games. And that would be an awesome surprise. It could be, we're going to give you alternate art for three cards. That would be a cool surprise. But this being all play, I wouldn't be surprised if it's something really, really special. That board game room makeover that they did, this isn't like they brought in a table and they changed some light bulbs and they hung up some posters. They got the people out of the house. For like two days. And they were like, yeah, we're going to set you up in a hotel. And they took down walls. They changed. They had electricians in and carpenters in and redid the entire game room. And this before they published any of it, I was working at, uh, at Origins and Joe's, he's swiping on his phone. He's like, yeah, look at this. We, we broke this. And this one's down to the studs. We put in these new lights and then <laughs> this canister lighting in the recess. I was just like, wow. They didn't just uh, come in and, you know, put paint in the room, you know, they really went all out and knowing that they're ambitious enough to do something like that really makes me curious what this medallion reward is going to end up being. Well, they have currently the three game bundle, which has the all play medallion currently has mm -hmm. over 1100 backers. So we'll see what, what they're planning. It's going to be something. Well, Josh, one more thing you put on here. What is cake pie? So cake pie, I have been, in and out of the board game industry, trying to figure out what to do with my life as a career. I don't. I like being in a kitchen, but it's hot and sweaty in there, and sometimes you want to do something different. <laughs> and I, speaking of uh, works differently with all play. I've, I thought about. I've been doing design game for a while, and I haven't gotten too much published. I've gotten some traction somewhere, and people are starting to know who I am. But you know, I, I want to do something more. I love. I love board games, and I want to be in the industry somehow. But you know, every single job out there requires ten years experience if you're entry level. So oh, never, never mind that. There's a ton of jobs in the board game industry that are like, we need you for a weekend yeah. once a month. You know what I mean? Like even successful businesses in the industry, like TMG, they went under. Like mm -hmm. these companies fold. There's a lot of risk involved. I'm in a lot of the groups on Facebook where, you know, it's like board game centric groups. And every now and then you'll see the post where somebody's like, I'm really looking to get into the industry and work full time. And you know, the recommendations that people give, it's like, ah, that's cute and all, but I'm sure it happens. But there's a lot more people that want to do it than there actually are jobs, I would suspect. But you're trying to trying to work around that. I am. And and to go on that, there's there there's a lot of jobs in the industry, but it's not 
what people want. People want to do like, oh, I want to design games or I want to do the art in the games. Well, there's lots of jobs in accounting and logistics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, real jobs that boarding companies are looking for for the, lots of the bigger stuff like Asmodee. They require an accounting degree, you know, yeah, and, you know, and some sort of formal <laughs> some formal experience. For education. But sure. yeah, the way I'm going around that is that I am making my own experience and my own education by starting my own publishing company, which wasn't intended. But as I was, you know, meditating on this and I'll say praying on this, trying to figure out what to do with my life, this felt right. And I never intended on doing this. But looking at All Play, and you, you've seen their booth, they have the one minute teach line games that are really mm-hmm. easy to demo, they're really affordable, and people buy them like hotcakes. They, I've sold 50 copies of Mountain Goats myself. You know, Josh, I I don't mean to cut you off, just tangent. I swear they have to be the most profitable company at any of these conventions we go to. I don't know that, but like you you do a demo for folks and it takes 10 minutes and you teach four or five people how to play a game. Two or three of them go and they instantly buy it just like that. And then next 10 minutes, here come four or five more people and two or three. Like some games, you got to sit down four people and they got to sit there for like a half an hour. You're teaching the rules and they get to play like a turn or two. Maybe one of them buys, maybe they don't. All play just like, man, they're all volume and they push those games and the games are good. The games sell themselves on their quality, but their their structure, the way they have things going, they're like a well-oiled machine. Floor is yours. Yeah, but that's the thing. I want to be a part of that machine. I see this and I look around the other booths and they have great games. There's some great mm-hmm. games out there, great approachable games. But on the outset, they look intimidating. All plays doesn't look intimidating. No. And so I want to take that idea of games that aren't intimidating to look at that are easy to jump into and mm-hmm. make a whole company, a whole publishing company on that, which is what Cake Pie is. Games that are a piece of cake to set up and easiest pie to teach. And I like it. That that's the whole thing. I've got we got a game called Beach Day that we're working on, one of my designs. But hopefully in the future, we already have some prominent designers who I know, to lack of a better term, who want to sell their small games to me once the time comes. And if this works out, they're encouraging me. And you know, but that's the whole thing. I, I'm we're making games that tap into that endorphin rush of buying a $15 game that you'll play more than once and that you can play with your friends. Veteran gamers can say, hey, sit down with me, play with this person who doesn't play games. And let's play together. And that person's like, oh, this is fun. I want to play. And then they go into the whole industry to see what a wonderful hobby we have. But that, that's what mm-hmm. I'm working on it. Hoping to launch our first Kickstarter in 2025. I have one partner named Brennan who's with me on that. And, you know, I'm kind of the COO. I'm going to handle all the operations and logistics. And I'm excited for this new venture. Well, when the time comes and you're ready to fire up that uh, that first Kickstarter, we'll have you on as a as a guest as opposed to a co-host. Thank you kindly. Well, speaking of being the guest, Josh, I'm going to give you the floor. Let's do a few recent plays. Why don't you tell me one that you had on the table lately? I, You'll be excited about this, Patrick. I was able to play War of the Rings 2nd Edition. Not the card game, 2nd Edition. Wait, the big, the big coon, the big box, the oh, – I'm big jealous. Hunker. Yeah, no, jealous it was – Jealous is what I am. Yeah, so me and my friend Scott not, – not King Scott, another Scott that I have down here in Eastern Town – we usually have a game night every week. I can sometimes make it, sometimes I can't. But this week, it was only two people, me and him, who could make it. So I texted him and said, mm-hmm. hey, let's play War of the Ring. We've been talking about this for a while. Let's do it. He's like, heck yeah. So we sat down. He brought his copy. I have my own copy, but he brought his. We set it up because we started at 6 o'clock. And we thought we weren't going to finish it because this game is notoriously pretty long. And yeah, we finished yeah, right at 9.55, five minutes before the store closed that we were playing at. Whew. We plowed through it. And I got to say, Patrick. Have you played this one yet? <laughs> Famously, no. <laughs> Not yet. It is fantastic. 
very oh. it's it definitely deserves its spot in <sighs> number one. Now I have said before in the podcast, my favorite game of all time right now currently is War of the Ring the card game. Mm-hmm. And I think I still stand by that. Only because it's more accessible, I'll be able to get to the table more often. And sure. I love card games usually more than board games in lots of senses. But this is more than definitely in my top 10 for lots of reasons. In the game, what you're doing is that you're rolling dice, and these dice have actions on them. One of the player mm-hmm. is playing the shadow. The other player is playing the free peoples on Middle Earth. When those actions are rolled, you select them, carry them out back and forth until all the actions are resolved. And most of these actions involve moving units, playing cards, or you know drawing cards from decks. Now, this is a very watered-down explanation. I don't want to get too far into it because there's lots of nuance to this game. Sure, but sure. that's pretty much what you're doing. The shadow player is trying to control lots of strongholds in Middle-Earth and pretty much wipe – kind of have like a military victory and wipe the floor of Middle-Earth from all of its free peoples while they're – Free peoples are trying to hold off until either A, they can somehow manage to push Mordor or the Shadow back, which is extremely difficult to do, or Frodo and Sam make it to Mordor and cast the ring into Mount Doom. So here is what makes this game so great. First of all, the dice the, I, the dice action selection system is fine. I thought that was just a fine way to get actions out and to keep the each round kind of tactical. But mm-hmm. the card play. Oh, multi-use cards and the way that you can – you have a great choice where each, like player ha- yeah, each player has two decks. Are you like, like, I forgot the exact names, but it's like character and strategy decks. And you can choose a draw right. from either one. And they're, each of them are multi-use, which either you can A, get an immediate benefit, or B, usually, wait until a specific instance happens in the game that greatly benefits you. So, for instance, if Gandalf goes to Fangorn and you're able to get Gandalf in Fangorn – and at a certain time, you can pretty much wipe out all of Isengard if the cards play right. Oh, and if you man. do that, it really wrecks you. It wrecks your entire – it wrecked my entire game because I was playing as a shadow. Or you can say, hey, if I'm able to w- get all my forces to Minas Tirith and play this card about Denethor's Folly, I can take away all the military advantages that usually happen in Strongholds. And I did that, and that really messed up the Free People's player. So it's just really – meaty decision of do I get an immediate benefit that I definitely need or do I mm-hmm. wait and hopefully plan my entire strategy around making this one instance happen that will greatly benefit me. Gotta say, Patrick, I can't wait to play it again. It's going to take some time, I think, but I can't wait to play it again. Okay. Are you in position to be able to teach this thing? I can be, yes. I, I, I think if I – and the rule books, it, it's there's lots of like the game is not complicated. Like you're rolling dice, selecting actions, and carrying them forth. There's just lots of itty bitty rules and edge cases that you need to refer to the rulebook constantly. But I think I could figure it out. All right. Are you going to pack? Oh, wait, are you staying with us at PAX? I think I am. I'm staying with Scott. Where are you staying? I'm staying with Scott. I guess then we'll be staying in the same place. All right. How about we set this thing up on the coffee table and let's make it like every night we get back, we'll play for another hour and you know, teach me teach me more of the ring. Sorry, Tom. Teach me more of the ring. <laughs> no, let's do it. You remember I'll, we talked about Thursday Factory night. 42. I, 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 I again Thursday yeah, night, you, so we'll set it up. You seem to really Deal. like that one. Heck yeah, I did. And we even got a level up promo card in their Kickstarter last year. I, I remember uh, a bit of level up for the show getting that promo from Dragon Dawn. And you know they did Grey Eminence. And Michelle as well. Uh, we've done a bit for them, actually. Well, now they're going to do a bit for our listeners. Did you manage to get another promo code? Oh, you bet, King. 10% off this one is using promo code LEVELUP on their website. 
Now, this is for anything on their site. Mm-hmm. White Hat, Grey Eminence, Factory 42, Beyond the Rift, everything. Even the giant Dungeon Crawler Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift. Everything is 10% off with promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. So, if I'm seeking a new adventure, where does I journey to use this mythical promo code spell? Two easy ways to do it. You can click on the logo for Dragon Dawn on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com or get on over to ddpgames.com and click shop. I, I Easily, I gotta tell you, one of my favorite things we're able to do with this show is find some ways to help adventurers save some money and score some loot. So get on with it, adventurers. ddpgames.com, click shop, promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. Level up. All right, I got one designed by Jacob Oleksik. This is from Archon Games 2022 game. Just let's rewind to 1992 when a computer that had more color than a black and green screen meant that you were hanging out at a rich kid's house. <laughs> a flagship game with stunning graphics for the time. Wolfenstein 3D. And we had the chance to play Wolfenstein, the board game, which I've talked about on the show several times leading up to PGX. It was the big old demo game. It takes place in the legendary Castle Wolfenstein. And like the action of the flagship award-winning games developed by Machine Games, Wolfenstein, the New Order, and Wolfenstein, the New Colossus, it occurs in the early 60s in a world in which the Nazis won the Second World War. So, as I mentioned, I spent over summer and into fall spending way too much time assembling and painting this game so it would be a hell of an eye catch for PGX. Side note, Archon Games, and I think I mentioned this before, all their all their plastic, all their minis, like you have to assemble them. Okay. Everything in this game you've got to put together and glue together. I know. And they're all on sprues. So you gotta like get them off the sprues. Here's the worst part. I was like, all right, I'm gonna paint these. I'm gonna make them look really good. The bad guys are pink and the good guys are like dark blue. So you can't just go over it with a little bit of white because you're going to see the, the pink underneath and you got to go over it again. Like if it's gray and you miss a spot, it just looks like shadow. No big deal. Why aren't the pieces gray? Oh, my God. <laughs> Josh, I assembled all these things and then I took them out to the garage and I put them in a big cardboard box and I was hitting them with primer, getting them to gray just so that they wouldn't be blue and pink and the paint would... I could go on and on. Never mind that. Let's talk about the gameplay. Josh, we've got a dungeon crawl, and it starts with choosing a scenario to play, uh, of which there's 10, I believe, that come in the base box, and you can do them in order campaign style, or you can just play them one-offs. Start of a scenario, each player gets to pick a character, and they get their starting items, spawn at the spawn point, and you're ready to start crawling the castle. The objective is going to be spelled out by this scenario that you're playing, which in the case of the demo that I did at uh, PGX, it meant getting into the castle, completing one mission event, killing the officer, and swiping a key. So on your turn, you're going to get to allocate action points, typically for moving and shooting, but oftentimes for traversing an obstacle, opening a door, searching a treasure chest, that sort of thing. Things we've seen in dungeon crawls before. Now, like most games of this sort, the hook is in the combat. When you start getting them guns blazing, right? The system that Wolfenstein uses is actually really cool. Roll dice for hits, sure, that's standard. But each character and each item also has a means of spending ammo or hero points to do something even more powerful. And I don't mean like one option. I mean, usually there's like three per. So let me tell you, that okay. adds up the choice. Yeah. So if I want to go and I'm going to shoot this pistol, I, I can shoot the pistol and I can roll a few dice to see if I hit. Or I can spend one ammo, 
to shoot the pistol and then maybe I can roll, uh, have an extra chance to re-roll. I can spend two ammo and I get my extra chance to re-roll and I get to ignore armor or I can spend three ammo and it guarantee double hits, right? You, you have these choices to make once you start getting extra ammo to use. Let me tell you what. That amps up your choices when you're trying to decide like how you're going to go into a room and take down two drones and a soldier after busting down the door, right? Yeah. When you take down an enemy, you'll get a reward of some sort, uh, usually some ammo or or an item and usually a hero point. Uh, but sometimes you take down a particularly powerful enemy Then not only do you get rewards – but the whole team is going to get them too, ramping up the squad's power as you progress through this scenario. And I got to say, it does feel like you're getting more powerful. And the decisions that start off kind of simple, well, I can do a couple of things. That quickly turns into three or four people sitting around the table going, wait, I could do this now. Oh, I have hero points. And because I'm playing as BJ, I can spend three hero points and I can do this. Oh, wait a minute. You got you get what I'm saying? Like the banter yeah. starts happening as, you, as your options start to expand. The game also incorporates a noise element where if you kill a baddie, it's going to bump up this hazard dial by one tick. Well, if you kill them all noisy-like, there's stealth ways to take down baddies too. Uh, but typically, you're making noise when, when you're taking them down. If that hazard dial ever hits its breaking point, as indicated by the scenario, then it creates a massive spawn at a ton of places across the map. And you typically want to, uh, you want to avoid that if possible because <laughs> it's bad. And you play until either the heroes have completed the objectives of the scenario or until the heroes are D-E-D dead. At which point, the scenario is over. Game ends. Dunzo. Well, so how does this compare to – because there's lots of great famous dungeon crawlers out there. Gloomhaven, Alter Quest, Hero Quest. Mm -hmm. What sets Wolfenstein apart? Well, in the base action selection, like, okay, I have action points and I'm going to allocate them how I want. Nothing. That's, that's what we've seen before. What sets it apart is the use of hero points and ammo. Hero points you're going to get, and that's hero specific. My character has a list of things that only my character can do by spending these hero points. My items, my weapons, they have things that only that item or weapon can do by spending the ammo. So to me, what sets it apart, what makes it its own animal is that you ramp up options and you ramp up in power as you progress through play. And so you're, you're sounding pretty positive about it, but is yeah, there anything? Cool. No. Okay. What's wrong with it? <laughs> there has to be something <laughs> wrong with it. <laughs> well, Never mind the the pink and blue plastic on sprues that you have to spend a month. This you know I'm, I'm, I'm over that. I'm over that. I'm over yeah. that. Okay. Um, well, one thing struck me our our scenario we had to uh, we had to complete a mission objective, and in some games it's like an event happens. Uh, Gloomhaven, you're on your way to a scenario. You just pull a card from that that city stack, the city deck, and it's like uh, here's what happens, or the travel deck, whatever it's called. I, I forget it, but. Oftentimes at random intervals or even at set intervals, an event is going to trigger. And it's just like, hey, this thing happens. Here's a new wrinkle, a new variable for you to have to consider. In Wolfenstein, it's kind of player initiated. Like there's two spots that you go to to trigger the event, uh, or at least that's how it was in this scenario. Now, the event's a big stack of cards. It could be anything you're going to pull from there, but there's no way of knowing. And you could basically like you could wait and clear out the room. And heal everybody up before you bother triggering that event. It felt a little odd in that regard, but it also works out because if you're waiting and clearing out the room, you have a timer. Like most of these scenarios are like, by the way, you got 12 turns to get it done. By the way, you got eight rounds to get it done. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm nitpicking a little bit. 
it also like it feels like some of the characters are a little bit more powerful. So Scott and I played this before we took it to PGX. It's like I got to be able to teach this thing. I got to know it inside and out. You've been there yeah. when you got to yeah. teach something. I played as the old guy that's got like a cat on his shoulder. Now, I'm, I'm no <laughs> Wolfenstein pro, but I'm sure he's a character in Wolfenstein. I, I don't recall his name. He's definitely weaker. He starts with a pistol uh, with a silencer and he gets to roll like three dice. And the dice, each die has like a 50-50 chance of a hit. So he might get one or two hits. And then yeah. BJ, the main character, he starts with like double guns and he gets to roll seven dice. Getting those hits and killing those guys means he's going to get hero points faster than I am, which eh, well, no big deal. We're working as a team. But my guy inherently, while his, while his hero point activations might be cooler, it's going to be a lot harder for me to get the hero points to do those cool things. Mm. So I feel like some of the characters might be a little bit more powerful than others. The scenarios do have recommendations for which characters to use for each scenario. Like if I start playing as, uh, as, as I don't know, we'll say BJ, I don't have to use him every single scenario. I can always switch it up. So, yeah, the characters, I'd be interested to try them out in different scenarios and see if maybe they balance out a little bit. Okay, so is this a game that you recommend then? Like, or is there like, is there a hard line between if you like Wolfenstein, you like this, and an actual gamer who might like this? It was definitely eye-catchy for people that were like, oh, what's that? They saw the Wolfenstein box, like, is that Wolfenstein? You're playing it on the t- I didn't know they had a game. Here's the deal, man. This game, I would... Josh, you know, we don't like to talk value and I'm starting to consider going into year. What are the, we're about to hit our third anniversary. We're going to be going into year four and we've always said, oh, we're not going to talk value because, you know, that that's dependent on the individual. If I make a million dollars, then, you know, 200 is no big deal. We might start talking value because frankly, if we're going to recommend games, value proposition is a big deal. This thing's like 200 bucks. If you want to go like, if you want to go like all in all, all the, all the crap, all the expense, the old blood and, you know, it's not assembled, right? So you have to, how do we put this nicely? If you like Wolfenstein and if you find it relaxing to, to assemble miniatures, which honestly, it can be quite fun. You know, I didn't love it when I was on the 80th miniature, but it is kind of, kind of neat to just, you know, put these little guys together. If you like painting. A lot of people like painting. That's part of their hobby is painting these things. And you want to play a dungeon crawl. You're going to love this thing. You're going to love it. But if you're just like, oh, cool. It's a different dungeon crawl. I want to give it a try. I don't know much about Wolfenstein. Man, you're going to get a box of sprues and you're going to have to glue them together. (laughs) And when all said and done, the hook of, oh, okay, it's got a really neat hero point and uh, ammo system is probably not going to keep you. I think if you guys started talking, I wish more podcasts did this actually. So people were like, let's not talk about the price. No, talk about the price. If I'm paying $80 for a deck of cards, I want to know because I want to know how they got to that number and if I'm that expansion or whatever is worth that much. But it sounds like Wolfenstein was made for Wolfenstein fans. So Absolutely. It I'm absolutely that- was. It is fun, but it is a steep buy-in, not only as far as the money that it costs, but also the time that it costs to assemble. If it sounds like your jam, you're probably going to love it. If you're on the fence, you probably want to steer clear. All right, Bo, man, we got time for one more. What you got? Flamecraft, sir. Flamecraft. Ooh, you know, we just did a giveaway. Uh, if you're listening, we had a giveaway on that. So if you're in the BGG Guild, all you had to do was respond to that forum post saying, yeah, I want a copy of that little Flamecraft promo card, of which there were 19 given out. If you if you won one, you already know it. If you didn't hear from us already, we're sorry. Stick around. <laughs> and that's how we're going to do our giveaways is via the BGG Guild. You played some Flamecraft. I did. 
Yeah, same group, different game night. We were mm-hmm. playing Flamecraft. That's what we wanted to play. I was very interested in it. I came in with very low expectations of this game because I am hipster like that, I guess. But as he laid it out, and as we got the game set up, I will, you know, spoil it. I was pleasantly surprised. But in Flamecraft, you are, it's a worker placement game where you are in this little village that dragons and people get along and sell their wares. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the game, you'll place your little worker out on one of the shops. You'll gain resources, activate special abilities, and using all this to achieve personalized end game goals and to fulfill recipe fulfillment cards that are on the board get you points at the end of the game whoever has the most points is the winner well here's what i will say i completely understand why this game is so popular and why people are absolutely praising it most gamers maybe not people who play this listen to podcasts or as deep into the hobby as we are most gamers play this kind of weight of game and this is what they love something they can sit down not having to go back and forth through the rule book a lot they get this right. deep enriching strategic experience they want a game that gives them the satisfaction and makes it easy for them to solve a puzzle this is a very easily solvable puzzle in my opinion still finds a little crunch but i mean you're not lacking for anything in this game there is a there is an abundance of resources that you're drowning in by the end of the game and it is very satisfying to place your guy down, have like a turn that's like a middle on you gaining resources, activating special abilities, and moving the your little cute little dragons around. It's great. Yeah, no, I I got it. I understood it clicked for me. The art, the presentation, the gameplay was very smooth, and I understand why so many people are in love with this game. And I think that's where it falls a little short for me. Reasons why people love it so much are the reasons that I don't find it nearly as satisfying as an experience as I would like it to be. The puzzle, mm-hmm. is, I want the puzzle to be a little more crunchy. It can remain simple. You can have simple gameplay like Flamecraft does and give it a little more crunch. But I think the biggest problem with me thinking about over is that I don't particularly like abundance of resources in games. I like having scarcity. And using my resources as efficiently as possible in right, a game. Right. But you're not I mean, you're not lacking for anything in this game. I and mean, I I the way I played, I was lacking for resources because I was spending them so often as often as I could. I came in third place. So maybe there is a there's a strategy I'm not seeing there. But you know, it's I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it's out there. I think Cardboard Alchemy did a great job with this and the designer should get all the props. It's just I'm not gonna put it on my shelf. I'll happily play if someone asks me, but it's not going to come to my collection. Sounds like you've you've graduated as far as how much challenge you're looking for in a game. How well you call it crunch. Uh, how meaty the game needs to be. And it's kind of funny when when you set up for a game night. It's like okay, we're going to have a. It, let me put it to you this way: It's a very different game day when I have three. Like if it's Scott and Jason and Jenny, all bets are off. I can pick <laughs> any game and we can make it happen. It was Scott and Ryan and my buddy Mike at PGX. And it was like, okay, we're doing Eclipse. We're, you know, let's pick something yeah. beefy. And we loved it. Loved it. Yet, if we have a game day where it's like, oh, we have a couple casuals. Or, oh, this guy only makes it every few months. He doesn't, you know, he, he's, he's kind of casual in the hobby. Well, that's when it's like, well, we should probably not pick Arc Nova this time. <laughs> you know, it, we, we should probably water it down just a little bit. We still have a good time with it, though. And Flamecraft, I tell you what, the art's adorable. The shops are cute. All the drag, they have like silly, silly names that like, are kind brisket. Of fun, like, There's a yeah. meat dragon in brisket. It made me so happy. <laughs> yeah, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's partly that. I think I'm starting to enjoy more crunch in my games. But 
I really still love easy games like Sea Salt and Paper from Bombex, who we'll be talking about a little bit later for the 8-bit breakdown. Bombex released that game and Pandasaurus brought it to America. I love it. It's in contention for my game of the year, and it is way simpler than Flamecraft. So I think Flamecraft is riding a line for me where it is still very simple and tries to be crunchy, but not mm-hmm. overwhelming. That is just not sitting right with me. You know, that's a spot where games are really going to take off is if you can appeal to to your, your heavier crowd. And yet, like you said, most gamers want something medium, even medium light. If you can hammer that and do it just right. Oh, you've got a winner. And boy, they had a winner with Flamecraft. Oh, yeah, definitely. Glad glad to see your glad it's in the hobby. Hey, Carl! Oh, oh, my man! Come sit down! Come on! Oh, you little guy. <laughs> I don't know why Scott hates him. Yeah, it's that time, Josh. The Top 100 update. We got a debut in the Top 100, and it's the Castles of Burgundy Special Edition debuting at number 45. I don't know. I don't think that we missed it any 99 or 98. It's just <laughs> poof. Here it is. It's at 45. Bam. What? What you going to do about it? Nothing. (laughs) I'm guessing that the people that backed it are people that already love Castles of Burgundy. So naturally, it's a 10. They're just, it's a 10. Like some people might give it a nine. So (laughs) instantly got enough ratings and uh, it is at number 45. So we'll see how high the Castles of Burgundy special edition climbs. We've got no debuts other than that in the top 100. No changes in the top 10, but we do have some new highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. Great Western Trail second edition at number 30. Castles of Burgundy special edition at 45. Frost Haven at number 50. Heat pedal to the metal at number 59. And Beyond the Sun at number 84. Happy birthdays. We've got Brass Birmingham, the number one game on BGG at five years. Terraforming Mars, seven years. And Kalis for 18 years. Woo! It can now graduate high school. <laughs> It'll be drinking. <laughs> yeah, man. Kalis is going to be drinking. That's crazy. Think about that. A game has been in the top 100. It's almost, well, if you're in England and you're listening, it can drink. So this well, game will have to drink now. In England. Not in here. England. We don't condone that. We suck here. Designed by Jan Levitt and published by Bombix in 2023, Humanity is a game all about building up your base on Titan and conducting research experiments. The game is made up of three years, each containing several rounds, and at the end of the game, the end of the third year, the player with the most points wins the game. So let's set the table here. Each player's got a like a starting base, which is basically an arrangement of tiles that produce three basic resources. Plus, each player has a pair of level two astronauts. The level simply means that that's how many actions the astronaut can perform when activated. The central board is a rondelle, a big circle with eight modules going around it. These are like the tiles that you add to your base, plus eight experiment tiles. Basically, these give you some sort of like immediate benefit, plus having sets of them is going to give you some points at the end of the game. The module tiles, though, are a bit of a focal point, and they can do a variety of things. Blue and orange tiles produce resources, purple tends to give research points, and green gives points for having sets adjacent to each other in your base. Now each turn, players select one of their astronauts, and they either use it for its actions and they activate modules in their base, or they're going to send an astronaut off to that big rondelle main board to acquire a new module. 
So some extra details here. When you make a square of module tiles in your base, you put a point token in the middle of them and you get to upgrade an astronaut, basically making it capable of taking an additional action from this point forward. Also, several actions earn research points, which score at the end of each year. Now back to the round. When all players have used all of their astronaut actions, the round's over. The rondelle in the middle, it's going to have some of those tiles removed and the central control arm on it, think of it like a hand on a clock, it rotates, returning astronauts that it passes back to their respective bases. Play will continue until the end of the third year when points are tallied, including points for any of the three endgame objective cards, at which point the high score is the winner. Now this one we played on BGA, so I can't do my whole shtick about how did it fare when it was on our table. Nevertheless, let's take it back to Josh and get on with the 8-bit breakdown of humanity. For 13 years, the Cassini Orbiter made global observations of the entire surface of Titan. It discovered, among other things, seas and oceans of methane and ethane, confirming the unique character of this moon of Saturn, which, classified as a potentially habitable world, has become a priority target for future exploration. Titan is a body in our solar system that is analogous to the very young Earth. It is a natural laboratory on a planetary scale, whose future exploration should enable us to study some of the stages of prebiotic chemistry that has led to the appearance of life on Earth. Thank you, me, for the walkthrough of today's review game, Humanity. Josh, this one that uh, th- this was this was coming out at Essen, brand new, and it was on BGA. And I was like, oh, ooh, we got a media game. This is going to be perfect. We're going to be able to play it with Ryan, with Josh, Scott. We're going to play the heck out of this thing and get it as an 8-bit breakdown. It's uh, it, it's not exactly in the hotness, but it's certainly in the newness. You ready to give this thing the 8-bit breakdown? Yeah, let's do it. All right. It starts right here with the art and components. What say you? Um, <laughs> I'm going to say that the components are fine on Board Game Arena. We play this on Board Game Arena, just full disclosure. But looking yep. at the pictures, I think it looks good. I think they did a good job producing this. All the components look like they were well thought out for what they were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. The artwork, I am, for lack of a better term, unimpressed buy it. And I feel bad saying that because obviously someone put a lot of time and effort into creating this art and it's not bad art. It's just doesn't stand out in a sea of board games with incredible artwork. Translating that to the actual components, it's busy. It's too busy. It makes it hard for me to see what's actually going on. So I'm not too blown away with what is presented. Okay, well, that, well, that's fair. Now, as you said, we played on BGA, so we can't attest too, too much to the quality of the physical components. Now, there aren't cards in the game. It's tiles. This is predominantly tiles, and you have some miniatures for your astronauts, which I will say, that's kind of cool. I like that. Don't know how good of a quality they are, but I like them being miniatures. The tiles, I mean, you you got to work to screw up a tile at this point. They are busy. <laughs> As far as artwork, it's not an art-forward game. You don't have cards with pictures on them. There's, there's, I don't know where you could actually add artwork. All of the tiles are functional. They have to have numbers on each of the four sides. They do what they're meant to do. But boy, I got to feel like on the table, this thing's got to be fiddly. It's fiddlier than a devil in Georgia. <laughs> throw that in there. No, it's, it's, it's extremely fiddly. You're moving like <laughs> – I'll get into this later, but you have to keep track of your resources by turning the tiles in your own little camp that you're trying to expand. And yeah, anytime you, you produce a resource. Yeah, so you are twisting, turning, 
all these things. You have that little ron- little rotating Lazy Susan in the middle of that arm. There are so many moving parts of this game. I have to imagine that like 45% of the game is just moving things. <laughs> Sitting down at the table is actually just rotating tiles back and forth. You, you know yeah. what? That's my worry. It plays beautifully on BGA. It really does. And you have all the – in the upper right, it shows you all the resources that you have at this moment. It's, you can hover over something to see what it produces. That's remarkable. On the table though, I have to worry. Now, we haven't had it on the table yet, but I have to worry that it's going to be a, a lot of time spent rotating tiles. Wasn't so bad in a game like Carson City, but that was a portion of the game, a portion when you would upgrade a building. Here, it's like the main mechanism every time game. you produce yeah. and spend. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the game, let's talk theme and immersion. Bit number two, we're expanding our base on Titan to achieve scientific experiences. What do you got? Non-existent is the word I would use. I thought we were on Ooh. Mars. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought we were on Mars for the entire game until I realized that after you told me that we were on Titan, I was like, what? We're on Titan? And then I looked it up on BGA. You know, in the BGA thing, it doesn't say Titan. It just gives you a breakdown of the game and how you're settling stuff. Yeah, you no, we're, space we're, base of some yeah, sort. Yeah, we're on Jupiter. And so, like, no, I did not feel like I was expanding a base out. I understand what they were trying to do with like the whole positioning of the astronauts and trying Mm -hmm. to place tiles out. Maybe a little bit there, but all in all, I feel like I was just playing a very pasted on space theme game that could have been a farming simulator. I feel like this is a game where no matter what theme they went with, it was going to end up that way. Uh, they, I don't think that there's a way to turn this into a theme forward game. It's it's a numbers game. It's a positioning game where you're laying your tiles in your base and it's playing that central board with that rotating arm and saying, okay, how many tiles are going to go away this turn? How can I manipulate that? What are the end game goals? What do I need to acquire? It, man, it's awfully hard to turn that into something thematic, especially considering that the tiles have a lot of information. They have the areas where it shows uh, mm-hmm. uh, the amount of resources that they produce, or if it's one of those central tiles, uh, you know, everything's pretty, they already said it, everything's busy to begin with. It's going to be really hard to do something to butter it up and make it feel that you're not putting flavor text on anything, right? You don't yeah. even have room for additional artwork. So it's the type of game that I don't think you're playing because you want to get immersed and feel like you're, you're on Titan, right? Yeah, I think if they were to do a different maybe art style or direction, they might have been able to portray that a little bit. Maybe like instead of red sand or brown dirt, they could have done maybe a tinge of blue. I mean, something to show that this isn't Mars. This is not your typical desert planet. Something like that might have helped with the immersion, but with the direction they went, eh, it's just not there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's talk bit number three, complexity. Is this a complex game? No, I don't think it is. All things considering, you're you're turning, you're gaining resources to buy tiles to expand your base, and the based on how you position the tiles, what tiles you buy, you get points, and that's pretty much the game. There, the only thing that I say is maybe a little bit of learning curve is the science track, which okay. requires a little. You have to explain it to me twice. That's how that's how complicated it was. So I don't think it's that complex, but. There is a little bit of learning curve because as you play the game, you understand there's maybe some things that are more advantageous than others and sure, strategies that sure. may be more dominant than others depending on what public 
public goals are out there. And I basically agree with you. I wrote uh, minimal. I think there's a minimal complexity here. Your actions are limited to the strength of your astronauts. And whenever you create a square of tiles in your base, like, you know, one in the top left, top, we know what a square is. Why am I elaborating? When you create a square, <laughs> you put a little point symbol in the middle and you get to uh, upgrade an astronaut. Instead of them being able to do two actions in a turn, they can do three. And then maybe you upgrade them later to four. That's one mechanism. Uh, beyond that, it's it's strictly it's creating resources and then spending the resources for more tiles. Uh, I would dare say this could be the poster child for like resource conversion euro. And initially, I was really scared off because of complexity. I think BG, yeah, Board Game Arena, I think had it as a four out of five or something way up there. I was like, oh man, I'm going to really have to think this one through. I'm going to I'm going to sit down with my coffee. I'm going to watch the tutorial and then I'm going to. Pl- I'm going to watch the tutorial again. I'm going to watch a video because I'm going to teach this to the guys. Ryan's going to be so proud of me. And then I came to find out it was really simple. I, not really simple, but it was surprisingly simpler than I thought it would be. Didn't I was scared at first. And then I was like, oh, well, I, I can handle this. Bit number four is the rule book and learning curve. Josh, I had my balls in the rule book for a bit. Eh. My eyeballs, that is. It's structured well. Uh, I got to say it has a phenomenal section for references. Literally like every single tile, there's a, it's it's pictured in the back and it tells you exactly what it does. And they do that because the tile, all that it can have on it is some small icons. You might need to reference that from time to time. You're not going to need to after a game for the most part. Uh, I kind of wish they would have made the control arm section, that, that arm that sweeps things around the rondelle in the middle, the main board. I wish they would have made that a simple step-by-step because I know I recall with Ryan, we were trying to figure out like, okay, how far is this thing going to move? And I had to reread the paragraph two or three times to like three or four times even to fully wrap my head. Okay. So the first two tiles, if they're still there, they go away. Then every other tile goes clockwise as far as it can. And then the arm goes the first open spot available. Oftentimes that means two, sometimes it can be three. You can manipulate. There's a lot of game actually in, in how far that arm's going to go. And that's why I really needed to figure it out. What do you think of the learning curve? I, I taught this one. How long did it take to grasp what's going on in the game? I think I understood about a quarter of the way through what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that as far as how deep you can get into the game I think the long, obviously the longer you play the game, the more they're the more better, as I like to say, the more better you're gonna be at. The more better. Get yeah. good, son. Yeah, the more better you're gonna be at this game, the more you play it. But I don't think it's gonna take long for someone to catch up to a person who's been playing two years, person who's been playing three months. I, I think there's not much of disparity there. The game doesn't offer a lot of strategic depth enough for someone to master it or to take their time to master it, at least for me. I 100% agree. I couldn't have said it any better, Josh. Let's take it a bit number five, the meat. So I really think the meat of the game is that wheel, that arm that rotates, and its mm-hmm. relationship to your astronauts. The mm-hmm. timing of sending your astronauts out to that wheel to get the tiles you need in order to expand your camp is very important. Because if you see a tile that you desperately want, but it's on the opposite side of where the arm is going to be, is it really worth it to send your astronaut out and not have those actions to use for a pretty long time? 
And so timing that, you're feeling that rhythm between the arm and your board. I think that's mm-hmm. where most of the decision-making lies. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And you also have to consider what are the other players. Like if you're looking at that juicy orange tile that's on the other side of the board, you're like, oh, maybe I can wait around. It's just too steep to, to go for it right now. Yeah, but what if one of the other players is willing to make that sacrifice? Now, not only do you not have the chance to get it by waiting, you just don't have the chance to get it. Someone else got it. And that ties into those endgame goals. There's three targets that you're shooting for. One might say uh, have uh, have four orange adjacent modules. One might say have a diagonal of three of the same type of module. That's a factor. And that's what that's where a lot of the meat is, is competing with other players to acquire those. Also, the research track. The research track is simple. You're going to get research points whenever you get modules. You're going to get research points whenever you clear that debris that's around your base, that sort of thing. But at the end of each year, the game plays over three years. Everybody's going to get some number of research points based on how far up they went on the research track. But say in a three-player game, the person who was highest is going to get two additional research points because there's two people behind them. That second place person is going to get one additional research point because there's one person behind them. And that third person, they're not going to get any bonus. And man, I tell you what, you don't have to win the research track every single like round, every end of year calculation, but you cannot lose it all three. You got to get something at least for one or two of the years. Every time I've played, the person that's won has done very well staying ahead of everyone on the research track. Yeah, for sure. Big, big chunk of meat there. That's where the brisket is. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, let's move on to bit number six, replayability and variability. And you know what? I'm going I'm to shark this one. I'm going to take the floor. I found replayability. I think it's going to be a little bit low. And, and you said it when you were talking about the learning curve. There's not quite enough depth here. When you said somebody who's been playing for two years trying to master it, it's not going to take very long for someone else to catch up to their skill level because it's not super deep. You do have three variable goals at the end of each game. You draw three at random, but they're not going to change your basic arc of play. You're always going to be looking to gain as many resources as you can, as efficiently as you can, gain modules where it's efficient. Like you're always going to be doing that same thing, and hopefully everything falls in a line as far as the end game goals go. What do you think? Replayability, variability. Yeah, I have not much to add there because I definitely agree with you. What you're doing in the game is different each time. How you're doing it doesn't change much. So it's just a game that has different end game goals, but the randomness of the tiles coming out is about as much differentiation as you're getting through each playthrough. Well, I sense rain clouds coming in with the way we're talking. Let's move to bit number seven, the downsides. Ooh, sit back, adventurer. Sit back and get comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) So this is odd because the designer of this game has designed some good games. One of them being he's co-designed Turing Machine. And the production on this is good. I say this again, for lack of a better term, I find the entire design space to feel very uninspired. It is just another game that I cannot figure out a reason or justify for why it should exist. And I think that is the worst thing I can say about a game, sadly, is that right? why is this here? I, I have 10,000 mm-hmm. board games that release a year. Very rarely do I find a game like, yeah, this doesn't need to be here. This doesn't need to exist. So for instance, Monopoly Mario or Monopoly Golden Girls, that needs to exist because there's someone who loves Golden Girls, who loves Mario, that I can give this to and they're going to treasure it. That's why this exists. That's why those games exist. This has no reason to be 
in the hobby. And because you're not getting anything special, you're not getting anything that's revolutionary. You're getting just your basic resource conversion euro with an arm that isn't even that cool, in my opinion. It could have been done a different way. Okay. It just feels, it's like eating toast that's cold. It's (laughs) it's bad. Yeah, but uh, maybe I, I don't know, Patrick, am I being too harsh? Well, I, I get what you're saying. If if aliens came down and they said, "What is rock and roll?" and you had to like just come up with the most generic rock and roll you could, Nickelback. You play Bruce Springsteen. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I like Nickelback. But. <laughs> uh, what? I do like. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that is a topic for a different day. Uh, this is maybe the point you're trying to make. Is it feels a little bit generic. It feels like okay, there's nothing special, nothing exciting, and that's where my downside lies. I think is there isn't that one moment where I feel clever or excited or where things culminate. There's this big crescendo of all this time that I've been building up a strategy now. I'd like to see some player powers, some secret goals, maybe both, something to spice it up, give it some pizzazz. Uh, it's as is it does play very much the same every game. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, having not played it on the table, I can't say this for certain, but man, there's no way this game isn't fiddly. It really isn't. And back to that excitement, I, I use this comparison in my own little world. I look at games compared to Uno. Uno is mm-hmm. a not a very well-designed game that has one excellent moment that makes it as popular as it is. When someone says Uno, you're watching everybody's hand. You're looking at the table waiting for someone to get down to one card and try to scream Uno before them. And that moment is great because that's the tension that is always present at the table that makes everyone interact with each other. It's exciting. The game is dumb. You're just matching cards and it's almost all luck and very little skill. You could argue there's some timing and how you play your cards out, but it's it's mostly luck. And it's But it's a dumb, right. fun game that sold billions of copies around the world. Humanity is a very sound designed game that is extremely boring, that has no Uno moment of – no Uno moment, no damn it moment. It has nothing. <laughs> it has nothing. <laughs> Well, why don't we segue that right into bit number eight then? And and I think we know where you're going with this one, Josh. Was it fun? And who's it for? No, it wasn't fun. <laughs> it's it's it wasn't fun for me. I did not have a good okay. time playing it. Uh, it took us three weeks to play this game, I think, because I was just, <laughs> I was so, I, as soon as I did my turn, it went out of my mind. That's how unattached I was to this game, and I apologize for that. I really did try, but I just kept forgetting. Because I was thinking about when, when's the next time I can play Sea Salt and Paper on BGA, or when's the next time, mm-hmm. what games I'm going to bring to PAX and stuff like that. It's, no, I just, I did not have fun with it. It is not my cup of tea at all. Who is it for? I want to try to be as nice here as I can. I think if you are looking for a not too heavily thinking game that you can play with your friends over a long period of time, and not get lost and not like, what, what was I doing again? Play this on BGA. I think this belongs on BGA. In person, I don't know who this is for. I mean, it looks fiddly. There's other resource conversion games that are simpler and provide a much better experience. I think this belongs on BGA with friends who may just want a different way to play resource conversion. Josh, I'm going to say it's not a bad game, but eh, was it fun? Uh, It's kind of tough to say. It's got some interesting decisions at multiple points throughout play. Every turn, you're going to be tasked with deciding which resources or modules you want to collect and which astronauts use to do so. So it's functional. It's a game. 
I just don't think that it's great. And that's because it lacks that point of excitement. It lacks that pre-planning to, you know, where you can make something really work out. You know, oh man, I've been building up to this all game and you know, here's my trump card. There's there's nothing like that. It's extremely tactical and it doesn't give you a chance to unleash that grand strategy. So for me, it's okay, but eh, it's not great. I didn't find it particularly fun. Now, who's it for? Here's a level up first. I got nothing. <laughs> Just, uh, I have played humanity six or seven times in preparation for this review. And now that we've done it, I am done with this game. Mm. Uh, now, I've done that with games before, but I honestly can't think of one aspect of this game that's going to make me go, oh, yeah, I'm going to break that back out. You know I mean, like th- there are some games that, okay, shelf it. We, we did the review. We're done with it. And then six months later, I'll be like, oh, you know what? That was kind of fun. In fact, this lacks the uh, any sort of incitement and intrigue to the extent that I can't pinpoint any gamer that I can confidently recommend this one to. If you see it on BGA, you want to give it a whirl. It's easy enough to figure out. You might like it, but uh, we didn't. Yeah, play Century Spice Road instead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. We In most of our episodes, and it's because we want to review the game that we've been looking forward to and we can't wait and we're excited for it. And, and we're pretty good at picking games that we're going to like. You know, we kind of get that hunch that it's going to be something that really is a slam dunk. Think Great Wall, Return to Dark Tower, to Thunder Road Vendetta. Of course we're loving them. They're games that we're cherry picking. Well, this one we cherry picked and it was one of the rare misses. Yeah, and then you cherry-picked and got a sour cherry. It happens. Adventures, one year ago today we had the opportunity to play and review God Tier. This is an episode that Hungry Gamer Will Brown was on, and as Josh mentioned, I went down the list, starting with Hungry Gamer, to see if somebody else could do this episode with me, and Hungry Gamer was unavailable. Josh, have you ever played God Tier? I have not played God Tier. It's actually, actually, before I knew you guys were doing a review, I've actually looked at this game a couple times, because uh-huh. it looks interesting. And it, uh-huh. it looks like you get a tactical miniatures experience without the, you know, the humdrum of having to use measuring tape and stuff like that because it's hex based. So I've looked at mm-hmm. it before. Definitely, it's intrigued me, but I haven't actually sat down to play it. That's exactly the draw of this game. So each player is going to get a faction. It's, we found that it works best at two players. Each player gets a faction. Your faction is going to typically consist of like one main big guy and then some number of followers, some number of minions. And each of them have their own their own rules. But get this. It's a card. It's really simple. So you'll have like three or four cards in front of you and you know what you can do. Sometimes you can upgrade a guy and you flip it over. You know, it's, Sometimes you can unlock an ability that way. But that's the extent of it. Everything else is hex-based movement. You're trying to collect uh, the, these god tiers, these crystals on the board. Uh, it comes with several different scenarios. And get this. That game has like Jeez, they got to be up to a dozen factions or more now. And everyone plays differently. There's like the plant faction that's spawning things. There's these like crystal keeper factions. One, it's like the rock people. It only has two minions. Only two guys come with them, but they're tanks, right? This is the kind of game that you could... You could break it out every Friday. Guys, Friday night is God Tier Night. Like first Friday of the month is God Tier Night at the shop. Everybody bring a faction. Oh, I don't know what Pat's going to bring. Is he going to show up with that faction or that faction? I could see this almost being like a lifestyle game. The one that we keep coming back to. The big draw of God Tier is that you do get that tactical skirmish miniatures game without the big hardcover rulebook 
having to assemble and paint a bunch of mod. Well, I guess you could paint them if you want to, but without having to assemble them anyway, uh, it's neat. It's variable. Different factions every time you play. God tier is cool. Josh, if you have the chance to play this one, I do recommend it. And get this. Speaking of, we might start talking value. This game's cheap. I it don't know is. about what, yeah. the, what they're selling it for on the website, but like it can regularly be had. Base game, I want to say MSRP was probably 60 or 80 bucks. It can regularly be found for like 30. And each of the expansions with the minis and the cards and everything, like an expansion is a faction. That's what you're buying when you get an expansion. Oh, I'm going to play a different faction. I want a different team of guys to play with. They can be found sometimes for like 10 bucks. Crazy. Yeah, no, it's one I, I think I should try if I had the opportunity. It's Steam Forge, so I'm a little hesitant for various reasons but you know it's with your recommendation and what i see people saying about it i am more inclined to give this a try than other games by them one year later that's a recommend for god tier Hey, Adventure, it's time to do something we haven't done in a long time. This being the show that uses your experiences and opinions. Scott and I initially, going way back, we had a segment that we called Around the Geek, where we just go on Board Game Geek, check out some of the forum topics, and provide some of our input and some of the things people say. We're looking for those intriguing posts. You know, I, I don't always have time to get on there, so I appreciate whenever I could listen to other people <laughs> talk about random board gamey stuff. And that's what we're going to do today, going around, around the, the geek. geek. You ready, Josh? Yeah, let's do it. Josh, I had you cherry pick these. Why don't you give us the first one? Yeah, so this one comes from is it Gengar? Oh, sorry, I'm trying to get Gengar. Yeah. So this one comes from Gengar Billy, the Pokemon Patrick Gengar Billy. What oh, games? Is that right? Yeah, that's how it's pronounced, Gengar. Like, dude, the, you know how you get little micro badges? Yeah, he's got a micro badge. He's a McDonald's fan. It's the Golden Arches. That is incredible. Oh, yeah, I want to get that. Kindle reader. Wait, and then his second foodies. one says foodies. He's a foodie, and he also has the McDonald's fan. Oh, this this guy's a, I want to. I'm going to send him a message. <laughs> Say hello, Gengar Billy. Well, Gengar Billy, he says, "What games did you love last time that now you dislike a lot?" He says, "I remember liking Munchkin and Boss Monster a long, long ago." This is probably not his first language being English. Yeah, I'm guessing that too. <laughs> How time flies. Wow. <laughs> After playing so many games, games that relies on luck as a strategy really falls off the radar fast. So, Patrick, the question is, have there been games that you've played that you love and now maybe not so much anymore? Josh, I'm going to lead off with a response that Hench Critter gave to the OP, the old early Axis and Allies and Ikuza. I spent afternoons and evenings on these games, and that's exactly the reason I dread playing them now. They take too long to finish. I couldn't help but bring that one up because of Ikuza. Ikuza is like the remake of Samurai Swords or Shogun, as it was called. It's one of those old Milton Bradley coffin boxes from the mid 80s. And I've mentioned on the show before, we did we do an annual Shogun game. Well, Ikusa game, if we're being appropriate here. We <laughs> play a game of Ikusa. And, dude, it is for bragging rights. Like, it matters. It matters to us. And we played it in 2019. We did it again in 2020. We did it in 2021. Didn't finish. We went like seven hours on this thing. Didn't finish. And then 2022 went like seven hours again. Didn't finish two years in a row. We didn't even finish the game. And we can only do one day because my brother's up from Texas. And that's like the one chance that we get to hammer it out and get it done. So he came up just this past weekend. And I, I said, the guy's like, dudes, look, we can spend all day playing Ikusa. We might not finish. 
or we can play like three or four fun games that you know we can some of them that we know maybe we'll learn a new one and we're all like yeah so i i had to bring that one up because of akusa but you know what i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with downforce oh okay pray tell why let me start off by saying that i don't hate this game nor do i avoid playing it it's a good game i like the bidding for the cards at the start the weighing the amount that you're going to pay for which car based on cards in your hand what you're able to move the fastest right at its core downforce is more of an economic betting game than a race game and i think that that's what makes it so appealing so how did it come to this what makes this a game that i don't particularly care for anymore well, let me tell you, this game plays out almost the same every damn time I play it, Josh. Mm. One car gets out to an early lead and it crosses that first betting line, at which point everyone writes down who they think is going to win the race. Now, inevitably, half the table bets for the car that just passed that line. Got an early lead, like a reasonable early lead, and that's where the smart money lies. So let's say it's a red car and half the table's bidding on it. Now, the player who has a red car, obviously they're betting on themselves. They already passed the line, right? With an early lead already, the red player moves their car as fast as they can, and the other players that just picked that red car to win, they're pushing it along the track too. Hey, hey, what do you know? The red car is the first one to hit the second betting line on the track. This time, red bets on themselves again, and even more other players pick red to win. Thus, meaning even more players are going to help push the red car along. When at last the red car wins, everybody that picked the red car gets a hefty sum of points, sure. But the red player also gets those points for winning along with their bet, and they're going to win the game. Inevitably, they do. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know, but that's like the script for the last half dozen times I've played this, and it's keeping me from wanting to try to play it again. Maybe, maybe if we did like a house rule, like you're not allowed to bet on yourself, I'd be down for it, but mm, I've seen it enough now that I think I'm over it. I know I've never played Downforce. It's never been my cup of tea, but there are my guess is that there are other racing – racing games have evolved so much, especially in the bidding area, that I could see mm-hmm. this falling out of favor in lots of people's books. I mean we have games like Ready, Set, Bet, Unicorn Fever, even Rallyman GT, things like that that are just sure. more preferred and provide var- more variability than a game as well as Downforce can provide. Yeah. yeah. But it is still a fun game. It's still a popular game. I'm only dogging on it a little bit. You know what? I have the expansions. Maybe we'll break that out and give it a try. But enough of me. Tell me, Josh, what's a game that you used to love and now you don't? Well, you know what? Let's lead it off. Tell me, Josh, you found a response that resonated with you. Read that response and then I want to hear what game you used to love that you don't anymore. Yeah, so this is from Falconer's Buzzard and a bunch of other people. (laughs) It's it's, it's a couple of different responses. There's Gengar Billy. Fonkers, Blizzard, and Rukas. But they said, Root. It took me ages to get the entire Root set, but these days, I want a Wuro. I'll choosing something else. If I want cute animals, I will again choose something else. Someone was like, I like playing Root. I just hate teaching the gosh dang game. Another person said, I feel exactly the same way. There are just so many slip-ups people will make with this one. I find exhausting. I feel like I'm also a single referee with the responsibility of the whole field. And I gotta say, mm-hmm. Patrick, I tend to agree with this. I don't even ha- I don't have Root, and Root is one of my favorite games of all time. Because one, it was my one of my intro games into the hobby world. But two, it's just fun. There's so many great factions, they all play differently. There's so much meat there. But holy heck, I do not ever want to teach this game. You have to teach the base game and how the base game generally works, and then you gotta mm-hmm. teach every single different faction. In it, and sometimes you have to learn new factions too. And there's so many small nuances in the game that it just leads to people, you know, messing up 
and that could mess up the entire way the game flows. And getting disenchanted and you as the teacher, you're not having fun at that point. You're just in and out of the rule book. You're trying to make sure that people understand it. You're not actually getting to play the game. Yeah, it's it's really doesn't make for a great experience, but the game is fantastic. I have the app. That's my preferred way to play. If I want to play with the factions, I'll buy the different factions and just play against either people online or a computer. And that's the way I like to play Root nowadays. Now, I got I found this interesting, but I still love Root. A game for me that has fallen out of favor is one of my very first games I got into collecting seriously, and that was Smash Up. So oh, okay, I, okay. It's a throwback. Yeah, big throwback. And they're still producing expansions for this game today. But I, I have didn't the, know that. Oh yeah, no, there's still there's still lots of people who play it. And there is still part of me that really likes playing this game. But the vivacity of me being in this game has greatly died down. I had the bigger geekier box, that giant cube that fixed an entire Calyx. I got for mm-hmm. Christmas one year for my wife because she knew how much I loved it. By the time I've only have it halfway filled up, and there's more than enough factions nowadays for me to fill that entire thing up. It just like and you combining the factions and playing on the bases. Yeah, there's tons of variability. Each game is gonna be extremely different. But going back to a previous comment where I've kind of matured as a gamer a little bit, it's no longer providing the area majority experience that I'm craving, as opposed okay. to games like Disney Sorcerer's Arena or even Airland at Sea, which I find infinitely replayable. I love Airland and Sea. It's just I have my two factions that I and I the fun part of the fun of the game is smashing up the factions and seeing how they combo sure. each other. You know, mm-hmm. I play games to win. I don't get upset if I lose, but I play games to win. And if I have the choice, I'm going to pick the two factions I want to play to win the game. Because I look at the other cards and I'm like, this is just not how I want to play. Lots of them aren't interesting to me. I have the two that I think are fun, and I haven't lost with them. So it's like... All right. We got to know. What are they? Um, cyborg apes and wizards. Hmm. Well... You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> well, the reason I like them so much is because they're very action-based. Cyborg apes you play out, and the more actions you play on them, the more powerful they get. Whereas wizards, they're all about playing a bunch of actions and repeating actions, because normally in the game, you can play one minion and one action. So if I just have cards that can allow me to play 13 different actions, I can just place those monkey actions on the card if I draw my hand up enough, and I'm just – I can't be stopped. Then that way, it's no fun for anyone else because they're going to watch you take 10 minutes on each of your turns. Yeah, exactly right. And then if I want people <laughs> to have fun, I choose subpar factions that I don't want to play. So it's, it's just right. not fun for me anymore to teach. It doesn't play good at two, and our majority, most of the time, play at two players. It's a very fragile game. I think it plays best at three. Four players gets a little crazy. I played I play this game at one point with 16 players, just mm-hmm. trying to manage mm-hmm. it, how much I was loving it. And it's just bleh. It's just bleh. At this point, it's on my shelf because it was a gift, but I have very little intention of expanding beyond what I have at this point. It's interesting. I think we, I think a lot of us, and I think a lot of listeners probably can relate to this, where you have still some of those games that they got you hooked. You know, they, oh man, that's the game that really got me into tabletop or, or one or two of them. Some of those early games are like, I'll never get rid of that. And yet we barely play them. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I've graduated. No, oh, that's funny. It's been Relatable. two years. Yeah, it's been two years since I played Smash Up. That's how long it's been. All right, Josh. We got time for one more around the geek. What'd you pick? So this comes from Mukerling, which I'm pretty sure is some sort of German angry word that means I like Muker or something like that. Mm-hmm. What is the term downtime born out of selfish gaming? One of my favorite games is Eldritch Horror. It's a long game with a lot of downtime, but it's still a fun time because you can watch and listen to what other players are experiencing. 
Recently, I was thinking about why downtime has such a bad name and why it has become kind of synonym with a bad game design for many people. Same for a player elimination, sadly. So today, most games try to address downtime with mechanics that involve you outside of your turns. Simultaneous play, real-time, bonus action effects. Besides the fact that those mechanics can be really fun by themselves, I dislike their function to diminish downtime because I like downtime, especially in heavy and involved games. I like to have a break. Think about my next move, and especially watch other players what they're doing. This is half of the game for me. The game isn't just your turns, it's all of the turns. Playing is not just acting, it's also reacting. Maybe the rise of Euro style in solo games intensify the dislike for downtime? That's my theory. Of course, the less interactive the game design, the less reason it gives you to be interested in other players' turns. For me, the dislike of downtime is a symptom of selfish gaming. You're not alone at the table, relax, watch, and strategize outside your turn. It's fun. So, initial thoughts, Patrick. Did mm. you see any comments that resonated with you in this? or Was the term downtime born out of selfish gaming? He's, he's sort of taken this stance that like, oh, if you don't like downtime or if you're giving this, we'll say the, the space in between, this negative connotation, you're being selfish is sort of the stance that he's taken. Uh, I don't know that selfish would be exactly where I would go with it. <laughs> Do you see any comments that resonate with you? Yeah, I got one from Skate. <laughs> Good luck, Patrick. Good I'm luck. Not, I'm not going to try and say it. He <laughs> says, for me, downtime isn't just in between your turns, but rather the time that cannot be spent planning out your next move for whatever reason. Typical reasons being you already know exactly what you're going to do or you don't have the necessary information to start planning your turn. And where what everyone else is doing has little impact on you and you don't really care what they do. This is best minimized by either making the game more interactive, thereby keeping everyone engaged, or avoiding long chains of actions. Cough, dominion, cough. <laughs> <laughs> Using that definition, I wouldn't consider trying to look for games that minimize downtime to be selfish. The problem of downtime can admittedly be minimized if you can have a great side conversation while this is going on. But this doesn't always happen with strangers, and having the majority of the game feel like waiting for the majority of players is simply isn't a great game design. You know what? I think maybe what this user's onto is, and this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to stake my flag is I think downtime in games, that is your opportunity to strategize and think about what you're going to do next. Yes. Some games don't cater to it, but those games typically don't have you taking super long turns. To me, the biggest offender sometimes is the player's if we're playing a game where each player's turn takes like, I don't know, we'll say a minute and there's four of us playing. I only got to wait a few minutes for my next turn. No big deal. But then there's that one guy, right? You know, hey, you're listening. You know that one guy that's going to take four minutes for each of their turns. They didn't think about what they're going to do whenever it wasn't their turn. So it comes to them and they're like, oh, okay, uh, let me see now. And then, you know, they put their, their, their hand on their chin and they stare at the board and it's like, come on, Carl, what are you doing to me? That's where downtime gets to me sometimes. Whenever it's it's a, a result of players not trying to stay at the task at hand. So is the term downtime born out of selfish gaming? No, I, I think maybe it's born out of people that can't stand waiting forever for someone to finish their turn. Josh, what do you got? Oh, I'm going with James A. from Canada, the easiest name pronounced so far. I think downtime feels different depending on what's causing it. If someone is not paying attention and waits till their turn comes to start deciding what to do, then that is more of annoying downtime. If the mm -hmm. downtime comes due to the nature of the game and that so much changes by the time it gets back to you, you can't really feel like you're playing your turn much, 
And that's a bit more acceptable. And he goes on to say some other things, but I tend to agree with that. It's a game by game basis. And sometimes if a game doesn't allow you to decide until it's your turn, maybe it can be of a problem. But I think I agree with your point. I think gamers have just been spoiled recently with games that cut downtime down by a lot. And maybe mm-hmm. that is just a trend that's coming. Maybe people and game designers are trying to decide games with no downtime sell. Like, for instance, Earth. Earth has zero downtime and it is very popular. Practically, yeah. Practically mm-hmm. no downtime. You're just constantly going getting stuff. But if you look at games like we talked about Flamecraft, for instance, Flamecraft starts out with having very little downtime. By the end, you could have a good minute or two of downtime based on the abilities and all the resources you're collecting. So is it born out of selfishness because people don't like waiting? I tend to agree with you. I don't, I don't, I'd say no. I think that downtime is a very important part of gaming. I think the problem relies more on analysis paralysis amongst gamers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think every game has an average turn. The game mathematical. Every game has an average turn length. And when I think a turn goes 30% or even 40% beyond that average turn length that we have created in our minds, then it becomes a little bit annoying as long as that time is only because the player at the table has not taken their due diligence in being prepared for their turn. You can have a game that changes completely by the more state changes completely by the time it comes to your turn and still go, okay, well, Let's go and do this and be okay. Like, for instance, Root is a great example of this. The game state can completely change by the time it gets to you, but you can still have an idea of what you're trying to accomplish overall and execute it the next best way. So mm-hmm. that's just what I initially think is that downtime's not bad. It's not selfish. It's just that when someone takes forever and AP starts setting in on them, that's when it can become sort of a problem. Sure. Agreed. Agreed. Now, downtime, let's not forget, that's your opportunity to, like, grab a pretzel, refill a drink, <laughs> you know, a small chit-chat here or there, so long as it's not in- interfering with the game. There's nothing wrong with downtime, but this user kind of takes a stance at, like, how dare you guys, you know, not like, by, by saying that t- to call it downtime, to not appreciate that that time as your, that's your strategic thinking time. How dare you not enjoy that, right? It, it's almost a, a looking down thing, but you know what? I take it all the way back to, to Catan. Back mm-hmm. in the 90s, everybody's played Catan. You know what one of the biggest hooks is? Is that there's practically no downtime. The dice yeah. roll and you're looking. And then that person wants to trade and you're looking at what you got. And you're saying across the table, hey, by the way, uh, you need sheep, don't you? Uh, then a seven rolls and the whole <laughs> table leans in there. Oh, where's he going to move the robber, right? Yeah. It's an engaging game with minimal downtime. Having a game try and get rid of downtime, that is a good thing. I think one of the reasons Twilight Imperium is so good yes. is it is an eight-hour game and you're engaged for the eight hours. You like, I think people have this, this notion that, oh, man, there's going to be times where you're sitting there for 20 minutes with nothing to do. Nope. It is the fastest eight hours alive. It really is. And having played it recently, fresh in my mind, turns were taking 15 to 20 minutes. I didn't even – that eight hours flew by so fast in the game mm-hmm. because I was paying very close attention to what the other players were doing. And the board state didn't change much, but I was still right. encapsulated – encapsulated. Is encapsulated a word? I think encapsulated is like like the liquid in a pill whenever you take one of those pills. Uh, I think you, you wanted to say captivated. Uh, 
Well, in the Pillow of Twilight Imperium, I was encapsulated with other people's <laughs> terms. <laughs> All right, Josh, let's wrap this up. We're going to finish as we always do with how we leveled up since we last spoke. Josh, we haven't had you on in a bit, so I'm really curious. How did you level up? There's a lot of things I've done, but I think I'm going to choose something related to Tabletop Submarine. So I submitted for a media badge for PAX. And this Mm -hmm. is the first time I've done this. And, you know, get a media badge. I'm not sure how hard it is to do that in PAX. But I submitted it. And looking on the forum of board game reviewers and media, a lot of people did not get badges. And they're very upset about it. And debatably, they might have even bigger channels than us, than me and Andrew have. But I got an email saying that I had been approved for a media badge for PAX. Hey, well done. So, I mean, it feels good. Like, you know, maybe so, – so whoever is in charge of that thinks that what me and Andrew are doing is great. And, you know, it's it's really led to great moments of, you know, meeting Alan R. Moon, having an interview with him, him saying, hey, I'm going to be – he's going to be visiting my game store actually here soon for an event because he knows people who live in my town. I want you to come and – we were talking about Old Gods of Appalachia, which is an RPG I'm running there. He says, hey, uh-huh. if I have time, I would love for you to run a game with me and my friends there. Blah! I would never imagine. You're going to run a game for Alan Moon? It's a possibility. He says if he has time, he would love to because he's very intrigued. If it doesn't happen, he's a busy guy. I understand it doesn't happen. But the fact that he would want to do that with me, and I, we made this connection through the submarine, it's a great feeling. So my level up is the submarine is going very well. I'm very happy. I have a media badge. I've met one of my gaming heroes. It's been a good month. I'm happy to hear that, Josh. Thank you. What about you, Patrick? How have you leveled up recently? Well, keep it simple. Our guild, our BGG guild, is up and over 100 members, which when you scroll down the list of seemingly a 1,000 different board game podcast guilds, most of them have like two members. So (laughs) so to to finally hit uh, triple digits felt kind of cool. And that is my level up. Well, it's it's great because half of those – guilds and podcasts aren't even active anymore so (laughs) (laughs) that's a fact hey adventurers if you haven't yet get on back to last week where we have berkey on the show to tell us all about game toppers next week scott's gonna be back with me we're gonna be talking flip ships and all kinds of gamey goodness scott you get the last word (laughs) we're entering the month of november the month with thanksgiving let's take a moment and just be thankful for what we've got all the games we've played all the friends we've made laughs we've shared with each other let's keep that going make the end of this year the best it possibly can and go into the next year even better miss you guys and i'll see you on the next episode ah see josh i snuck him in there after (laughs) (laughs) josh thanks for joining me i appreciate it thanks for having me on patrick always love visiting Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.